Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. We also cover craft, the agent hunt, query trenches, publishing industry, marketing, and more. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com. And make sure to visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog for additional interviews, query critiques, and more as well as full transcriptions of each podcast episode at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. This summer, I'm adding a co-host, fellow author Kate Carius Quinn. We'll be doing a series that focuses on hybrid and indie authors. If you're thinking of going the self-pub route, we've got authors who found success with six-figure sales, as well as authors who are just starting out on the road to indie publishing. Learn from them. Learn with us. We are recording this on July 2nd, and it has been 90 degrees here in Ohio for about a week. It's hot and miserable, and when I turn on the computer, everything, (laughs) everyone everywhere seems to be miserable. Do um, do they sell fireworks in Ohio? So only certain things are legal, so Mm -hmm. I don't know how hard it's enforced with my little puppy dude, my little puppy dude friend. I have to be careful with fireworks this year. So I'm probably, my family doesn't really do anything for the fourth. And you don't um, have a big cell firework show. My cousin used to have, and I'm sure it was illegal. <laughs> he used to have oh, a yeah. huge, huge fireworks show, but they have a baby now. So they're not mm. really doing that. And I've got a puppy, yeah. so I can go anyway. Well, we in New York, it used to be illegal for all kinds. Like, Nothing was sold here. And so we would get these flyers in the mail for this fireworks place that's just over the border in Pennsylvania. And people would go down to Pennsylvania and load up on fireworks. So even though it was illegal to buy them, people would have tons of fireworks in their front yards. And like people were not hiding it. I think two years ago here in New York, not like, I guess not the big, big ones, but like the basic ones and sparklers and stuff. So, and it's also expensive. Like when people are like setting off fireworks for an hour, like believe how much money people were literally setting on fire. For a long time, we couldn't get certain fireworks and I never really had any. And my ex, his family was from West Virginia and Mm -hmm. he didn't do anything in West Virginia. And so like they... (laughs) I think that's their state motto. (laughs) It is. It's actually wild and wonderful, but it means the same thing. So... Right. (laughs) That's crazy you know that. Yeah, his family brought a bunch of um, fireworks to me one time. And, you know, I never used them because, like I said, I don't want to set myself on fire. I have set myself on fire mm-hmm. multiple times. I don't need to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. So You would totally be the person who would get, like, a faulty firework and be like, hey, guys, I'm typing this with one hand. I'm still learning to type with my right. other hand when I only have three fingers left. And we'd be right. like, oh, Mindy. <laughs> oh, Mindy set herself on fire again. <laughs> well, and, and I need all my fingers, as you're saying. I have to type. Yeah, constantly. Yeah, it's what yeah. I do for a living. My sister yeah, actually yeah. asked me the other day, "How's the typing going?" And then she just kind of stopped and she went, "I'm sorry. I mean, how's the writing going?" And I'm like, "No, you're right. It's typing. <laughs> like that's what I do for a living. I type. I type for a living." But yeah, I I had these fireworks from West Virginia that I was just like, I I don't know what to do with these. And then so like mm-hmm. my niece's friend, who's also a cousin of mine, high school girl, 
was over and I know her parents and I was just like, hey, you want these fireworks? And she was like, yeah, sure. So her mom texted me like an hour later and she's like, hey, um, are these legal? And I was like, I don't know. We're from West Virginia. And she texted me back and she's like, I Googled them. They're totally illegal. And I'm like, hey, send your kid over again. Next time I'll send her home with something else illegal. You'll never know. <laughs> so did they end up using them or not? Oh, they used them. I mean, it's it doesn't matter where we live. It doesn't yeah. matter. So, yeah. And then she sent me video of them. She's like, we set off the fireworks. And I'm like, that's cool. Thanks. A little bit of joy in my life. Speaking of joy and trying to find something positive. There's a podcast that I came across called The Melanin Project. It had an episode that I thought was particularly poignant for me in the moment Mm -hmm. because she was talking about imposter syndrome. So the whole podcast is about positivity and self-love and just feeling better about yourself, period, which we all freaking need right now. And Mm -hmm. she she did an episode about imposter syndrome And I thought it was really interesting because I know so many authors, some of them extraordinarily famous and extremely talented, that really do attribute their success to a fluke, like right time, right place kind of thing. And and that is an element, Mm -hmm. but, you know, (laughs) you don't get to be where you are simply by luck alone. And, And so many people, authors especially that I know, do suffer from imposter syndrome and it made me, the episode made me think about that because I do it too all the time when I'm Mm -hmm. talking to people and I'm talking about writing, I'll be like, yeah, imposter syndrome, you know, I got lucky with my debut and I got lucky with my editor and my house and all of those things are true. But I also Mm -hmm. got them through talent, perseverance and hard work. So it made me think, it made me think just about imposter syndrome and, and taking a little more credit in my life for the things that I have accomplished. But then also... Mm -hmm. I had to laugh. I don't know if I've ever told you this story, Kate, but I was <laughs> on a panel with a very famous white, older white male actor. The question of imposter syndrome came up from the audience. There, People asked, you know, does anyone here, does anyone on the panel suffer from imposter syndrome? And someone had to explain to him what imposter syndrome was. <laughs> oh, to be a white male. Uh, Yeah, I mean, he was just like, and he was very sweet. I'm not going to say who it was because he was very sweet, very kind. Um, Yeah, but still, that's a level of privilege. Oh, absolutely. It was super funny because, and he genuinely like looked up and down on the panel and was like, I'm sorry, what, what is imposter syndrome? I've never heard of this. (laughs) Oh my God. Wow. I was like, well, I guess when you're born that good looking. Yeah, you just, it must you be don't so work. nice. Yeah, I was just like, okay. Yeah. Well. Anyway, it was just so, funny. And listening to that episode yeah. reminded me of that. Yeah, so you actually mentioned this podcast to me a couple weeks ago because I've been painting my house. We're getting ready to put it on the market. We actually just did it today. It's on the market oh, now. It's on Zillow. So you do need but, all the positivity you can find selling it. Uh, yes, but like I've been doing lots of painting and so I you know, and it just gets very, very tedious painting, you know, sure it's like does, sure does. one coat, two coat, you know, does it need a third coat and you're looking at it. And so, um, yeah, so I listened to an episode and, um, it was right around the time when the protests were really going strong a couple weeks ago. The episode was about black lives matter. And, mm-hmm. 
it was a great podcast to listen to that because so many voices that I think that I hear are, are more media savvy um, individuals. And this felt more like a person on the street reacting Mm -hmm. and giving you their feelings about it. And the episode actually started, well, it starts first with the theme song, which is amazing. It immediately went into a clip of president Obama And I believe it was from a commencement speech that he had just given and hearing his voice Mm. was like such a soothing feeling. Like it was like a feeling of being safe. Like when you're like a kid and you're driving home somewhere late at night and your parents are talking softly and you're in the backseat of the car and you just feel like safe and you fall asleep like that was how it felt. Like, I was like, I want to be that kid again. Yeah, <laughs> I right. believed yeah, that a, everything was going to be okay. Yeah. yeah. You need a bumper yeah. sticker Obama is my co-pilot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want him to be the pilot, though. I want him to I be know. the pilot again. Truth. Oh, my Truth. God. And then the host of the show, she, you know, she talked a little bit about it and what Black Lives Matter to her. And then she had this really great guest who talked about raising children and specifically raising black children and how to, you know, raise them to be Mm. proud of who they are. And so it was just really interesting to hear from that point of view, because I am a very white, white lady. I live in a very white suburb and, you know, I don't want to be trapped in this this white bubble, you know, I need more windows in my life and I need more access to, um, other people and, you know, outside of just my own experiences, because I think that's, you know, that's a big part that's missing for a lot of people. Yep. That's the truth. My cousin, a different cousin, I have many, many, many cousins. So my cousin (laughs) and his wife, they are an interracial couple. And so their child, of course, is mixed race. And they live in an area that is, you know, super diverse. And they have Mm. that ability for their child to have a diverse experience in being raised. However, he's, he's young. I think he's like five. He's a sweetheart. And unfortunately the, uh, the news and everything, you know, little, little guy, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't know that racism was a thing. Like he didn't know about it. And of course that's everything that we're, we're talking about and dealing with right now. And yeah, so my cousin and his wife had to talk to their, their little boy about why some white people hate black people. And, and they were like, yeah, that was, you know, it sucked. It was really hard. Yeah. And so that podcast, like that particular episode, I can see that being really useful. I know it's such a hard thing to have these discussions and, you know, we've been talking to my kids and explaining what's going on. And, you know, my kids are just like, that's stupid. Why are people acting like that? And I'm like, well, guys, there's a lot of history. <laughs> but so we're reading a lot and we're, we're reading um, American Boys together as yeah. a family. as like sort of having That's a discussion great. about it. Yeah, yes. it's so good so far. So we're all we pass the book around and we all read a chapter and then we discuss it. And so, yes. Um, so for, for those of you that don't know, um, All American Boys is an amazing YA novel by Jason Reynolds and then his co-author, Brendan Kiley. They're both 
wonderful men, lovely people to know and talk to. So definitely, if you're looking for something to talk with your children about, about what is going on here today, um, All American Boys is wonderful. And and it's a YA book, just Mm -hmm. to be clear. It is a YA book. Um, My daughter is only 10. My son just turned 13. And there is talk about drinking and stuff. But, you know, Mm -hmm. I just... I just feel like it's all an opportunity for a conversation with your kids, you know, because I was just like, totally. you know, some kids in high school do drink, but a lot of yeah. kids also don't. We just try and talk to our kids so much that they're like, please stop. Yeah. All American boys. That's a good one. Definitely. And also, if you're looking for something for yourself, check out the Melanin Project. It is yes. uh, for adults. There is language, just FYI, uh, mm-hmm. for anybody that might want to share it with their kids, uh, you go for it if you want to. Just FYI, there's language. I mean, I have language here, so I assume if you're listening, you don't mind. But So I wanted to throw that out there. Also, I have created a Facebook page for yes. the blog and podcast. Yes, Kate has what been. What a great idea, Mindy. There it is. There it is. <laughs> yeah, Kate, Kate has been pushing me to do this for a while. I uh, haven't done it because I have way too much on my plate. And this particular week, when I've had the most that I've ever had on my plate, I decided I should do it. So I have created a Facebook page for Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire. So just search Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire. And uh, give us feedback. Let me know what you think of the blog. Let me know what you think of the podcast. Let me know if there's someone you would like to have as a guest, and I will try to get them. Let me know if there's a certain topic that you would like to see addressed. And more importantly, if you have a specific question, if you have something that you would like to ask about writing, about publishing, something that you've tried to look for information on. And then when you look at it, you're like, well, but that's not quite exactly my situation. Go ahead and ask me. Ask me on the Facebook page and I will try to get to everyone here in the pre-chat before we roll into our guests. People used to comment on blogs a lot, but do you get a lot of comments on your blog anymore? No, never. People people don't interact on blogs anymore, which is fine. I mean, they used to. I do feel a little lonely sometimes over there on the blog. Um, but yeah. I started doing more. I do my interviews as always. And of course, which I should remind everybody, Saturday Slash, I do free query critiques on the Writer Writer Pants mm. on Fire blog. Awesome. Awesome. Amazing. Author. Author. <laughs> That's an author, author. Yes, that's what it is. Author, author. So yeah, free query critiques on the blog. Uh, Go to writerwriterpantsonfire.com. You can find the blog and the podcast. Visit the Facebook page. And transcripts of the podcast on the blog. Yes, absolutely. There are transcripts of every episode. And let me tell you guys, that is a pain in my ass. So if you're not using I also convinced you to do that. That was also Kate's idea. So if you're not using them, (laughs) tell me and I will stop putting three to four hours into every single one of those posts. Um, I I told you because I like to sometimes read podcasts instead of Mm -hmm. listening Mm -hmm. because it's it's faster. Yeah, yeah, well, it also yeah. supposedly is really good for my SEO, but I'm just like, <laughs> I, and I agree with all of those statements. And then while I'm doing it, I'm like, God damn it, Kate. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody, uh, let me know. 
go to the Facebook page and tell us. Tell us people you want to hear about, things you want to talk about, questions that you have. That's about it. Today's guest, we got something a little bit different for you. William Schreiber. We have an award-winning screenwriter today. I always try to bring you something that maybe will be a little bit different. A couple weeks ago, we had the creator of Pictionary. So today, we are having on William Schreiber, who is a successful screenwriter. My name is William Schreiber. I am a screenwriter and a novelist. I live in Seattle. I also uh, freelance write. I have a journalism background. I graduated from the University of Florida College of Journalism. The freelance life, we'll talk about that for a second, because I do uh, freelancing as well. I do mm-hmm. some work for hire and I do writing gigs and uh, gig work, stuff like that. I love it. Like personally, I enjoy it, but it's always funny. I always tell people when I go to like, let's say, get a loan from the bank or something like that. (laughs) And they're like, so, you know, we need your tax returns for the last two years. And how much money do you think you'll make next year? And I'm like, I have no idea. Right. And and they're just like, what what do you mean? And I'm like, I have no idea, guys. It's like I could make $100,000. I could make $5,000. I could make nothing. Like, I just, I don't know. So if you could talk about that freelance, the freelance gig economy lifestyle too, that would be, that would be great. Um, Can I just add something? (laughs) I just was talking about getting a loan. We just yesterday, we're in the beginning stages of trying to sell our house and buy a new house. So we talked yesterday to the mortgage guy who we used when we bought this house he was like now kate what do you do again and i said um i'm a writer and he goes oh yeah that's right oh that's so cool and then he's Mm. like you know what's your you know yearly income about and i was like i never know (laughs) yeah and he was like so that's cool from this point of getting us alone so um yeah it's it's it's, everyone thinks it's cool when you're a writer and then like they hear the money side of it and it's like ah yeah that's right yeah well when i was in journalism college you know journalism 101 if you're pursuing a journalism degree in order to make a lot of money you are in the wrong field that's the first thing they (laughs) So it's true, you know, I mean, freelancing is tough because it's a constant churn of finding work, doing the work. And, you know, it's kind of like film development where you have project at different places in the development process and you have to go out and get another one to put in the pipe while you're in the middle of Mm -hmm. a pipe on one project and ending the pipe on another project. So it's it's a lot of work. The pipe has gotten bigger because of all the the online um, freelance marketplaces People who need writers and writers who need work can find each other. Um, Like I'm on a site called Upwork. And I like to, the freelancing that I like to do, I really like to have a a connection to it, you know, so I can put my heart into it. And uh, a lot of the writing I'm doing are for clients who have a, a social conscience and are involved in social equity and in clean energy and in using oh, yeah. technology to help people who wouldn't necessarily be able to afford that technology with mm-hmm. without some intervention of some kind. I really enjoy it. If you're going to be a writer, you have to love to write and uh-huh. and write no matter what. And and that's that's kind of where I am. I just love helping tell stories that I that I believe in, you know, particularly when it's kind of a work for hire situation. 
I know actually a lot of people who have come to write fiction through, you know, starting in journalism or they worked for a newspaper or something. And I always think like that's actually a great background for writing. And when I was, you know, I've always wanted to be a writer, but when I was a youngster, <laughs> you know, I thought, oh, you know, and I was looking at majors. I thought I don't want to do journalism because I don't want to write nonfiction. Like I don't, you know, I don't want to write truthful stuff. I just want to write fiction and tell stories. But mm -hmm. um, now with age and wisdom, and I'm a huge newspaper reader, journalists tell stories. They're just telling them with facts. And when you're reading, you know, a really great writer, the bigger newspapers and the way they shape a story and the way they tell it. And, you know, when they find that perfect last line to end a story, it's, it's a craft as much as fiction. And I think it's, it makes you a stronger writer overall. Right. Yes, I agree. The return to close ending. Um, I, I was kind of the same way going into journalism school. I thought I really want to write about people, you know, I want to write about mm -hmm. human interest. And so the University of Florida had, you know, you, you could decide on a, on a newspaper track or a magazine track. And I took the magazine track um, because it allowed me to kind of follow that interest in writing more about people and about events and about life and, um, you know, human interest than covering, um, you know, mosquito control board meetings in Florida. What's really great about a journalism background, I think, in terms of translating into, you know, writing fiction or screenplays is the ability, you learn how to research. Research is uh, so important, I think, in, in injecting verisimilitude or believability, plausibility into stories, um, you know, why somebody would do something or why a situation is the way it is. So I think journalism is a, is a really strong background for this type of writing. Yeah, I agree. And I want to go back to what you were saying about the internet opening up a whole new venue for freelancers and for gig economy workers. My cousin, she actually lives in Portland, oh, does okay. video editing. Um, her husband is a cameraman. And now, of course, with uh, COVID-19, the film and TV industry is just like ground to a halt. Hopefully mm. they're able to pick up again soon, but they just went cold turkey. Nothing's being produced. Yeah. And my cousin, because she's a video editor, got plenty of jobs and they're kind of, they're, they're not high on the hog, but they're able to scrape by editing little videos for mm -hmm the internet. So, so I was asking her like, what are you doing? And she said, you know, those videos where it's like, put in a cup of almonds and then a cup of sugar, stir it counterclockwise here's, And you just see the hands moving. She's like, yeah, I'm doing those. And she was yeah. like, and she was hey, it's, like, it's work. <laughs> oh, that's what she said. She was so, she's like, it is the most boring work yeah. and I hate it, but I'm getting paid. <laughs> I just think it's super interesting. Um, how the internet has changed. And I want to come back to, to what you were saying about you're having the choice as a journalism major, newspaper or magazine route. Does that option still exist? Because print in the journalism world, my ex, uh, my ex was a photographer. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And it was just, it, everything collapsed. It just didn't exist anymore. It's curious about that journalism major that you, the program that you went through versus what a program would look like today. Do you have any, any thoughts on that? Yes. I know uh, at the University of Florida, they, they have pivoted, you know, along with traditional journalism into digital media and social media in a big way and actually have agencies there that are student run and student staffed do actually do projects, you know, as part of their their work. And it's very much, of course, you know, going online and social media. We need to not lose uh, sight of the fact that facts matter and mm-hmm. good reporting mm-hmm. matters. And no matter the, the platform, no matter the, the outlet, the content needs to be as solid as it ever has been. I was thinking about that when you said, you know, they tell you it's your th- first thing they told you at school was don't do journalism if you want to make a ton of money. And I feel like, you know, we're in a time when the media is so villainized. And I, I'm always saying like the media is not like this conglomerate. It's like people who went to school because they, they want to tell the truth. Like they want to like find out what's going on and then let people know like the true story of what's happening. Like that's their passion in life. We were schooled, and I believe that, you know, journalism is called the fourth estate of this country. Mm -hmm. And without somebody to keep those in power accountable, I'm sorry, but unchecked power and human nature left to its own devices is not a pretty thing. You know, I think that the the long and bloody and horrible history of the Roman emperors is a great example, Um, (laughs) especially the Julio Julio. Claudians. I'm kind of a geek when it comes to just this certain about a hundred years of of Roman history. Oh and yeah, the, the Judeo Claudians. Yes, of course. Yes, yes, of course. <laughs> well, you know who they are if I use if I use their names. So like Nero, Nero, okay. but Caligula, Nero, Claudius, all of them. Those those dudes. You know, they were just batshit crazy. Like by the end, Claudius being the exception, more than likely, but they were just batshit crazy and there's all these different theories about you know the family had epilepsy and they had probably had repeated seizures and had brain injuries because of it and and that's totally possible but a lot of behavioralists are just like no they had unchecked power they could have anything they wanted at any time and mentally that's just that's not going to produce a functioning human being right Really There's a reason that absolute power uh, corrupts is a truism. Let's talk about screenwriting. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's not talk about Roman emperors anymore. Sorry. I, like we, just, I love my Julio Claudians. I'm just a weirdo. I'm a weirdo. You were a finalist or you for the Nichols? I was a, a quarter finalist, which was the top 5% of the Nickel Fellowship competition. Um, I've actually had three top, three quarter finalists, one drama, which was this as a film is considered a drama, the book, um, a comedy, which I, I learned was kind of unusual for the Academy to, to rate, yeah. you know, a comedy in their world and an action thriller. So yeah, I played in that sandbox for a while. For listeners who don't know, the Nichols is an ex- extremely, I would say the most prestigious screenwriting 
award that there is, basically. Would you agree with that assessment? I would agree with that assessment. I think it's the most competitive screenwriting competition in the world. And I've been involved in a number of them and have, you know, like in the in the book world, you, you learn which ones uh, are paid attention to and which ones aren't. Um, I think Austin is another one that gets a lot of attention, the Austin Film Festival. So can you talk about um, how you, what was your journey into screenwriting and what made you decide to go in that direction and decide to tell stories in that way? After college, I, I, I worked at, in, um, at a magazine in, in South Florida, and then I became the editor of the University of Florida magazine, and I was there for five years. And then uh, I met my wife there. We got married, and we moved to Georgia, where I started freelancing for the first time after kind of being on a staff. And a producer friend of mine in Florida had a director who needed uh, a, a screenplay for a film idea he had. And it was essentially a coming of age family adventure comedy about a big city kid from New York who comes down to a small Florida beach town and learns how to follow his dreams from a, a band of uh, kind of comical retirees on the beach. And uh, they were led by uh, Ernest Borgnine, which was a lot of fun. Mm, um, wow. Yeah. And uh, I, I wrote the screenplay uh, never having written a screenplay before and just kind of followed my instincts um, kind of for music theory, actually, and storytelling. You know, I think we all have a sense of, of rhythm and stories and we know, OK, well, something needs to happen here. Otherwise, you know, it's boring. Um, so I wrote the screenplay, you know, based upon a, kind of a songwriting approach where there are movements, you know, whether you're talking about an orchestra or a symphony or even in a pop song, you know, verse, chorus, bridge, you set up expectations um, with certain chord progressions. And if you don't meet those expectations, it creates tension. Um, so I had the good fortune of writing that screenplay. It was my first screenplay. It was produced, um, which wow. was a blessing and a curse. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty rare. Did you read any screenwriting books? Because screenwriting is... I don't want to say technical. I mean, there's a lot of formatting, but also there's, you know, just the the interior, the exterior, the slug lines, the, right. you know. All yeah. of I read about how to format it and it looked extremely tedious to me. Mm -hmm. And so I, I bought a piece of software, Movie Magic, Screenwriter. Oh yeah, and I have that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've, I've worked in that program for years and uh, with a couple of key presses, you can move between all of those various elements of slug lines and screen description and character and dialogue. And yeah, you know, so much easier. <laughs> yeah. It gets all that technical stuff out of the way, you know, so you can just kind of get a flow going. So that's what I did. I, I found that program and that's what I, that's what I use. And it took care of all of that. As a non-screenwriter person over here, can you explain what a slug line is? It's whether it's an exterior or an interior shot and then what the shot is, and then typically the time of day. For example, interior craftsman house day. Okay. Then you just, you know, you have a few lines of description as to what the camera sees, what's happening, and then, you know, you bring your characters in. So the hardest thing with the screenplay is that there's no, you know, with a novel, you have, it's a lot of interiority. 
you know, you have all the characters thoughts and you can explain things, you know, why they make this leap to fall in love with someone or their thoughts and how they get from one thing to the next. And on a screenplay, it all has to be visual and you have to use visuals and, you know, make it visually interesting, the story, and also communicate everything through visuals unless you kind of cheat a little bit and use voiceover. That was part of the transition that I had to go through in terms of transitioning from telling the story as a screenwriter to telling it as a novelist, because I've come to realize that screenwriting is writing from the outside in and novel writing is writing from the inside out. You should stick with one POV, you know, unless you you build in a transition and you can't jump POVs, whereas a camera is all over the place. You know, it's all POV changes. It's funny. I'm a big romance reader and um, I will sometimes go back and read old school romances that I read when I was younger. The old school romance authors used to do a lot of head hopping. I don't know if that's a newer rule. That's a really good question because I have noticed that as well. I do editorial work on the side and every now and then it's like, I'll flag someone, you're head hopping, you can't do that. And then, and then I'm like, well, I mean, who says, who says you can't head hop? But it's like, we've been, we've been taught that, that you can't head hop. But I do think that is somewhat a new phenomenon. With third person, I'm always like trying to tell people like usually with third person, unless you have that omniscient narrator, it's usually close third person. Well, I think that uh, someone to watch over was probably a good story to start with as a novelist. It's my first book and there are two main characters, a brother and a sister. So it wasn't like there was this whole ensemble that you have to Mm. bounce between. So how long did you spend with screenwriting and then what made you decide to switch to writing a novel and why was it this story that you wanted to tell as a novel as opposed to as a screenplay? Do you think some stories are better told in one format or another? I do think some stories are better for the screen than they are for a page. My journey with this was, you know, it was a screenplay that was getting some traction, you know, up until... 2008 when the economy collapsed mm-hmm. and financing went away and independent shingles, you know, at the studios shuttered and have never come back. And there was consolidation among, you know, the studios and on top of everything else, you know, Hollywood was uh, polarized by a writer's strike right about the same time. The headwinds were just immense I set it aside for a while and worked on some other things. I continued to screenwrite. I got an agent in in LA. This is a small character driven, intimate, you know, family saga drama, and mm-hmm. that's not really a, a studio type of 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 story unless you can get, you know, a Laura Dern and a Jason Bateman in a package mm-hmm. together that you know people are going to be confident in. And so she shopped some of my larger stuff, which got great response. You know, we love the writings, just not what we're looking for. I know that we all deal with rejection and there, there was, you know, there is a lot of rejection, but you just have to push through it and you have to do it for the love of the writing, which I do. But mm-hmm. Nobody likes rejection. Um, well, so, it's so hard to get those. We love the writing, but this just isn't right for us rejection. And I have gotten those before. Yeah, and yeah. oh, you can die of encouragement in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Oh, I can't, I can't even imagine. I, um, some of my family is, is involved in the film industry, as I said earlier, and, and die of encouragement that that's about right. I mean, they, yeah. oh, pulled their hair out and I can't, I mean, I can't even imagine. I, I'm very pleased to be on the end of entertainment that I am on, even though it has its own pitfalls and definitely is stressful. It is not film. And I am so glad I've talked to so many people because I've sold rights to film rights to a few of my books. Mm -hmm. And I have stopped announcing that I have stopped telling fans when I sell rights, because then all they want to know is when's the movie being made? And it's like, is your movie out yet? And the answer is, well, the answer is no, and probably never. Like, this is just how it works. <laughs> right. I don't know what the percentage is, but the amount of, of uh, books that are, per the rights that are purchased that are actually turned into film is probably less than 1%. Like, it's tiny. Mm -hmm. And um, part of me very much resents the idea that having a movie made out of your book is like a step up. It's like graduating or an improvement. It's just like, no, the book itself is an end product. I'm a writer. This is what I'm proud of. Therein is why I wrote the book. It's an end product. Mm. A screenplay is a mile short of how it is supposed to be experienced by an audience. Mm. And I got to the point where this the screenplay got such great response, you know, at film festival competitions where it won this, that, and the other thing. And so I knew I had a story that resonated with people and I wanted to get it out to more people and it wasn't going to happen at that time. So I said, you know what? The book world, Mindy, I have to tell you, you are exactly right. The book world is so much more inviting and welcoming mm -hmm. of, of, of stories because there's so much, so many more pipelines and so many more audiences that, you know, are looking for stories. And mm -hmm. that's why I wanted to, to see this story in its final format and to be experienced in the way that it should be experienced in that format. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've heard a screenplay explained as it's a blueprint. It's like a blueprint for a house. I um, actually just had a middle grade graphic novel come out that I co-wrote um, with a friend at was released with DC in April. Actually knowing screenwriting was really helpful for writing a graphic novel. And it's a very similar process because um, my co-author and I were, we wrote it, but we had an artist, you know, who did the art. We, you know, say what the visuals should be and we're having the dialogue, but she really, her art really made it come alive and, yeah. you know, brought it to point. life. Right. Yes. I mean, again, you know, a screenplay is uh, it's just the start of a long journey. And there are so many potholes along the way in terms of, you know, it's a fickle business and anything can change until it's actually your rolling principal photography. All bets are off, really. Did, did you ever consider um, trying to direct it yourself, putting on that indie um, producer director hat? At the time, I uh, I didn't think that I I had the ability because I didn't I'd never done that before. I didn't have the ability to make it into the best film it could be. It really does you know take a team um, of people who are skilled in in a lot of different areas. So I mean, I, I toyed with that a little bit, mm -hmm. but and the you know the the voice in the back of your head says, 
when you're going after financing, well, what have you done? Nothing, but trust me, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's a tough thing to sell. I wanted the material to be to be done in a, in the best way it could possibly be done. And I didn't think I was the person for that. I think that was probably a good choice on your part. If you don't have a passion to direct and you don't see it, then I think a lot of times with creative fields, people look and they think I could do that. You know, everyone thinks they can mm-hmm. write a novel. Everyone thinks they could do it. And it's like, well, try, you know, if you feel strongly, yeah. but you know, it's, it's definitely harder than it looks. Well, it's I've, very true. And yeah. I've had so many people say to me, I've always wanted to write a book. I'm like, okay, go do it. Right. Then write. <laughs> well, as a screenwriter, you know, you've, you've seen the movie a million times in your head and it'll never be as perfect as it is in your head. And I think if you, unless you approach it as a director, it could be really difficult because you want to get the perfect shot that you see in your head and the, and the clock is ticking and you have a schedule and we're getting behind schedule. We've got three more setups to do today. And you also hear the characters in your head of how they say something. And I had that problem with a short that I directed in film school. I received like an award so that they gave me money to direct a film I would have fights with one of my, not fights, but like arguments with one of my actresses. She would, you know, say, oh, I don't think it should be delivered this way. And I'd be like, well, it should. (laughs) (laughs) Similarly, I don't listen to my own audiobooks because I know what the characters sound like and I know how that line is delivered. Mm. And I've my audiobooks are excellent. Everyone has told me that they're awesome. One of them even won an award. And I'm like, that's cool. I plus it's like I know what happens. I'm not going to waste my time listening to the story. <laughs> um, so let's talk about the movement of bringing your story from the. You already you talked about why you chose to transpose it from a screenplay into a novel. What is the mm-hmm. actual process like? What is what does that work look like? Kate referenced it before. You know, screenplays are all about structure. So. A screenplay, you know, typically, unless you're Quentin Tarantino or it's a three act structure. And so I had a three act structure screenplay from which to work. So it provided, you know, a a pretty detailed outline. And I was relieved to learn that, you know, a lot of novels are written in three act structure. So I took the screenplay and I actually had the screenplay here in front of me and I started writing from one page onto the other in Word and just knew that I had to create the film that I saw in my head when I wrote the screenplay. And I've always been described as a very visual writer. You know, people who have read my screenplay say, oh, I can see that. I, I saw the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I that was very helpful um, in the novel world because that's what you have to do. So I just literally went from, you know, page to page and ended up with a very crappy first draft. <laughs> um, but that's what a first draft is supposed to be. Well, good. I did it right then. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's a perfect that's, first draft. It's bad. Exactly <laughs> what it is. I realized that there were things that I didn't know about, you know, how to do this. And so I was. How long by, was your first draft? Can I ask that? Was it super short? How long? Mm-hmm. Like word count? Yeah, it was about 85,000 words. Oh, so mm-hmm. it turned out long. So you, and how long was, how many pages was the screenplay? The screenplay was about 110 pages. So you, obviously you found ways to fill in those blank spaces and yes. and really 
add a lot. So did you add more plot? Did you, or did you just, is that all the, I'm going to go for it again, interiority (laughs) that you (laughs) added in? I discovered more things about Lenny and about John and about their backstory. When you're given, you know, more range to work, the story can become broader and deeper. And character has always been the main focus for me in an approach Mm -hmm. to a story. And what is character but the sum of their past? Mm-hmm. That is who they are. And so I was able to explore much more of her past. And mm-hmm. I discovered that Lenny's mother died giving birth to her, which set her on a path from the beginning that was going to be a rocky one. And in the movie, we know that her mother died, but we don't know how. We know mm-hmm. that the mother is absent. And so I discovered that piece and it became a a new thread in the story that I still hope to get the film made that I need to go back and weave into the screenplay. But it was that kind of discoverability and, and the characters leading me places that allowed me to explore more of their interiority. The main problem I had when I found an editor and, and uh, you know, it was kismet that I found an editor in, in Montreal who just connected with the story. And I think that's so important to find an editor or whatever it is, an editor or an agent who gets your writing and kind of connects with. And she helped me to transition from approaching it as a screenwriter to a novelist. And it was a lot of POV issues. It's kind of a masterclass in learning how to maneuver that element of, of novel writing. Yeah. Um, so godsend. Just for listeners, I think it would be interesting. Could you like tell us how the very first scene or the opening of the screenplay translates into the opening of the novel. I could actually read the opening scene of the screenplay a little bit and then read the opening pages of the book. Is that? Oh yeah, that would be great. I'll just read the, the first page of the screenplay. Is that good? Or how long do you want? Sure. To Perfect. Yeah. yeah that I think that's great. great. Okay. Exterior, great smoky mountains, Vista dawn. The peal of a distant church bell echoes through densely forested peaks framed by an awakening sky. Exterior, fog-shrouded brick historic district, dawn. The sound of the tolling bell, closer now, plays off antebellum brick buildings in the flinty foothills, home to tourist shops in the charming town square of Mosley, Tennessee. Discover the bell in a steeple, adorned with a host of heavenly angels and lovely stained glass windows aglow in the soupy fog. Below, a low 1980s Chrysler Cordoba sags in front of a former Civil War church, now a quaint bookstore called A Likely Story, its angelic bell tower rising over the car. Interior, Chrysler Cordoba, dawn. Slender legs, raw with carpet burns, a blood-flecked white magnolia crushed in the chaos of a woman's dark shoulder-length hair. This is Eleanor Lenny Fields, 40. She's curled on the aged cracked back seat in a tousled sundress, her lavender polished toes clenched into little fists. A cop suddenly at the window, hand on his gun. He wipes away clay streaked dew, shines his powerful maglite inside. He tries the door, locked, taps his maglite on the window, and Lenny sits bolt upright, a sweat soaked storm on her face. She sucks for air, tries to get her manic bearings. She's probably pretty if not for the red-hot abrasion that weeps on her cheek and her left eye, 
plum purple swollen. The cop says, Mosley police. Dazed, she cracks the window an inch and says, I'm good. I'm good. Her soft southern accent is all she'd recognize of herself at this moment. I need you to unlock the door, ma'am. She takes an uncertain moment to process that. Finally, she lifts the handle, pushes it open, looks at the bookstore. She says, I work here, right there. The cop says, a likely story? Yes, sir, I read to the kids in the summer program. She turns away in shame as his flashlight beam flashes her battered face, and we match cut to the next scene. So that's how it read on the screenplay page. Mm-hmm. It takes a little longer to unfold, of course, in the book. A noise grated inside Lenny Riley's head when she flexed her jaw inside the station wagon. Grains crunched between her teeth. Sand? Her mouth was bitter dry as a bloody desert. As her thirst welled up, something gurgled, her lungs rising and falling. A bell tolled low and slow somewhere. She willed her eyes open. In the dimness, what appeared to be a swath of skin hanging overhead came into focus, the ripped roof liner. She was curled in the cargo area. Heat oozed from her sweaty skin, toes clenched into stubby fists. Rolling onto her side, she stretched her legs. She couldn't remember falling as a sharp clack, clack, clack on the glass next to her head instinctively sent her skittering into the opposite corner like a spooked deer. From the outside of the car, we hear, yeah, dispatch, she's moving. She recoiled at the sound of a man's muffled voice outside. As she glanced at the window to which she had scrambled, she was startled by something in a peripheral vision. What was that? Her brain registered a glimpse of something or someone there and gone. The disorienting instant was avalanched by a rapid succession of sensory assaults. Her cheek burned. Heavy air weighed on her lungs. Scraped legs wept. A glance around the caged space found her turquoise-dyed cowboy boots tossed on the other side. They instantly anchored her in the moment, and she clung to the side of them. Mosley police, I need you to open the door. She squinted into his glaring flashlight outside as her sense of self-preservation kicked into high gear. Police? Fractured thoughts converged as she unlocked the tailgate. I'm okay, she said in the strongest tone she could muster. The lilt of her southern voice was the only thing she recognized about herself. She pushed the heavy swing door open with a bare foot and ran her hand through tangled hair, a finger catching in the white magnolia she'd clipped in last night. She unsnarled the tattered, blood-speckled flower and winced when she attempted to take a deep, calming breath. And so that's how um, it gets into um, interaction with the cop. So that was really interesting because your first page of the screenplay has so much description. Like, I feel like you could have almost have just taken all of that description and just plopped it into a novel, but you totally change it. You know, you don't start with that, that wide, wide angle view of the mountains and then the town and then the car. That's an omniscient narrator, which was kind of frowned upon these days. So Mm -hmm. I I started in Lenny's POV inside the car instead of outside the car. And that's Mm -hmm. what I mean by screenwriting is outside in and novel writing is inside out. Yeah. And that's amazing how that's that just reading those two really just shows that in like such stark contrast. That was really cool to just hear that. And you can just so see that. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. That was a great illustration of how to transpose 
it was interesting to, you know, just go page by page and, and, and work it in and, and then massage it wider and deeper. You know, that's kind of mm-hmm. what the process was. How long did it take to move it from a screenplay to a novel? Well, I, I didn't work on it, you know, constantly as I was doing my other day gig stuff, but mm-hmm. uh, two years really to, to get mm-hmm. it into what I felt was, I always write toward whether it's a screenplay or a, a manuscript, something that is show shape. Like I wouldn't mind somebody reading this as opposed to being, oh, this is not ready. Right. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. Right. Um, so it was about a two year process all told from the screenplay to the book. Most listeners are aspiring writers. What would you say to someone who's listening and thinking, huh, I always wanted to write a screenplay or sell a screenplay, you know, or maybe I'll try that. I've, you know, tried writing novels. Maybe I'll try screenplays. Do you have any words of wisdom or uh, thoughts about that? Yes. Uh, having, you know, been on the, on the mountain in both worlds, I would say that especially today with traditional filmmaking, the opportunity is a lot less because there's a lot less outlets and Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot more opportunity writing a book than there is a screenplay. And I would also say just generally, if you want to write, you know, fiction and put your work out there, be prepared to deal with rejection. It's 99% rejection, but you only need the one yes. I've heard it said in, you know, some screenwriting podcasts that what we do as writers, you know, whether it's in the book world or screenwriting world, is kind of insane, really. Mm-hmm. You, you constantly put your heart out there and put your voice and put yourself out there and you're constantly getting rejected, you know. For me, I have to write. Unless you have to write, unless you have a story that is so powerful you're going to have to believe and, and stay with it for a long time. I would say just go in it, you know, with your eyes open and be prepared for, you know, unless there's a lightning strike, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a long haul. I don't know about Kate, but I've said to my listeners many, many times, even to get an agent, I was querying for 10 years and I wrote uh-huh. my first novel to get published was the fifth novel I'd ever written. I mean, it's a slog. It's real work. You got to have, we call it rhinoceros skin in the writing industry. You got to have that rhinoceros skin. Arrows have to bounce off of you. Yeah. For me, it was my third book that I found an agent and that was published. And uh, it's totally difficult and you have to slog through it. And you definitely, you become a better writer the more you write. So the book is called Someone to Watch Over by William Schreiber. It's compared to Where the Crawdads Sing and Sue Monk Kid's Secret Life of Bees, which, of course, are very well known. And it is available now. It released May 26th from Not a Pipe Publishing. Let the listeners know where they can find you online or on social media. My website is williamschreiber.com. And I'm also on Goodreads at William Schreiber and Twitter is at Bill underscore Schreiber. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. Don't forget to check out the blog for additional interviews, writing advice, and publication tips at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If the blog or podcast have been helpful to you, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating. Visit writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click support the blog and podcast in the sidebar.